1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. This is the living word of God. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Let's pray. Father, we come as your people. We love you. We love your word. We thank you for your revelation, the revelation of truth to us. Lord, I pray that we would receive it, that we would submit and bow as we are right now, that we would submit to your holy word and that we delight in it and delight in you. We commit our hearts to you and this time to you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was probably about a month ago that I shared from Matthew 6, and that was about worry. It was about the sin of worry and how destructive it can be, destructive to our minds and even destructive uh, to our bodies. And then several weeks ago, uh, we looked at Psalm 27, and that was talking about our relation with the Lord Jesus, uh, with uh, our desire, our heart for him, the seeking after his face that it commands us uh, to do, and that uh, often we should uh, be doing that in silence and solitude. Now, we're talking about contentment, obviously, today, and I believe contentment is related to both of those that I just shared. Uh, that is, it, this is the opposite. Contentment, I believe, is the opposite of a heart of worry, first of all. In fact, I think it is what less and less worry looks like, a contented heart, a contented person, and what a mind at peace looks like, a mind and a heart diligently seeking the face of the Lord Jesus. And we'll see that he is the source of our contentment. The Oxford Dictionary defines contentment very briefly. It just says it's a state of happiness and satisfaction. Very, very short definition. And satisfaction, indeed, is uh, related to the Greek word for contentment in this passage. William Barclay, in his commentary, he said contentment comes from basically two things. Well, basically one thing, knowing God. So first of all, knowing God and delighting in God's sovereign goodness and fatherly care. So certainly seeking his face is a means to grow in contentment. So knowing God, he said, and delighting in his sovereign goodness and his fatherly care. I'll refer to that several times here. And I like the definitions of the Puritans. Sometimes they're a little bit long, but I like them. I'm gonna, I, there are two in your notes. Thomas Watson, and I will be referring to uh, other Puritans today. I just decided I'm going to share more from the Puritans today. Thomas Watson, and these two books I highly recommend, The Art of Divine Contentment and The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. A great blessing to meditate through these. So Thomas Watson defined contentment as a sweet temper of spirit. I guess you could say a temperament. A temper of spirit whereby a Christian carries himself, in other words, he acts, in an equal poise in every condition or every situation. So think of that word poise. Balance, maybe. Contentment, 
in, in all situations, no matter what the Lord brings into your life. And then his, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs defined Christian contentment as that sweet, and you notice some similarity here, even though they wrote them different times, uh, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Contentment is a state of heart shown by outwardly acceptance of God's providences as from our sovereign Father in heaven, from his loving hand to us. In other words, a contented person really does not doubt, very often anyway, or for very long, God's, the blessing of God's sovereignty and of his loving and perfect providence. John Flavel, another Puritan, said God's sovereignty is gloriously displayed in his eternal decrees and his temporal providences. And I'd like to remind us from the Westminster Shorty Catechism, of course, in answer number 11, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So I'm going to be talking, referring to providence a number of times today. So this sermon, dear family, is basically about the blessings and the riches of contentment, but on the other hand, the evil and destructiveness of covetousness and discontentment. And the bulk of the sermon will be on that first part, the, the riches of contentment. So first of all, verse 6 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Is great gain. And to give this a little context, if you still have that passage open, I'd like to read verses 3 through 5 uh, of 1 Timothy 6. Uh, Paul was warning Timothy here. He was warning Timothy against uh, some people who were very proud, very uh, self-seeking uh, people who thought that, yes, my position or godliness uh, is a means of gain. And for them, it was a different kind of gain. So verse 3 says, if, uh, he was telling uh, Timothy, if anyone, Paul was saying, if anyone teaches otherwise, in other words, not sound doctrine, and does not consent to wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is, this is the character of that person, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions. This is not a contented heart. Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, Paul said to Timothy, withdraw yourself. So Paul was warning Timothy, don't hang around these kind of people. Speak against them, in fact. These people who are seeking to profit from their uh, ability to dispute and to use words very well and who thought that they could use this godliness uh, as a means of personal gain, financial gain. Matthew Henry said, Godliness is itself great gain. It is profitable in all things. And wherever there is true godliness, he said, there will be contentment. There will be. And so godliness with a contented heart, dear family, is worth a lot. Worth a lot more than the world thinks. There is great gain, it says. There are true riches with godliness and contentment. Godliness combined with an inner, 
contentment and peace, which is rooted in the sufficiency of Christ to provide all that we need in any situation, according to his riches and glory, surpasses anything that the world can ever offer us and tries to do to make us content in that, surpasses anything. And so there is great blessing. There are great riches in a contented heart and the contented heart of a person uh, who is growing in godliness. 1 Timothy 4.8, I shared uh, several weeks ago in the sermon on seeking God in silence and solitude. And the apostle said, there, there is a benefit to bodily exercise. There's gain in that. He said, bodily exercise profits a little. There is gain. But godliness is profitable for all things. In all ways, in other words, at all times. Because it has promise for this life and also for the life to come. An eternal perspective. So godliness is great gain. Psalm 37, 16, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. So the little that the righteous have, may have, compared to the world, or what the world thinks, the little that they have is much more valuable, is much greater gain than the worldly riches of many wicked, of all the wicked in the world. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. Thomas Watson in The Art of Divine Contentment wrote, if there is a blessed life before we come to heaven, it is the contented life. So he's equating them. A very strong statement. If, if there is a blessed life now, before we come to heaven, it is the contented life. Psalm 73, Asaph was an example of this. He asked the question, whom have I in heaven, he's praying, whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? And there's none upon earth, there's nothing, there's no one on earth that I desire besides you. I am content in you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. He is my portion. He sounded content, like his heart was not primarily seeking things or power or acclaim, whatever it might have been. But he was satisfied that no matter what, the Lord was his portion. The Lord was his lot. The Lord was his all. Burroughs suggested that the psalmist here was saying uh, to the Lord, this is quote, there is nothing in, he's saying, this is what he was praying, there is nothing in heaven or on earth that can satisfy me, Lord, but yourself. But yourself. J.I. Packer had a quote that related to contentment, but he started saying, he's talking about the difference between knowing God and knowing about God. And he just had three points. The big difference there between knowing God and knowing about God. But he said this, when you truly know God, you have, first of all, energy to serve him. You have boldness to share him. And his final one was, you have contentment in him. Contentment, you have that as you grow in knowing the Lord. King David's another example to us of contentment, of someone who knew the riches of contentment. In Psalm 23, we had some in our scripture readings today. He, the, the king said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In other words, he was content. He was content in knowing that the great shepherd would always provide whatever he needed. 
He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He had plenty to feed on, to nourish him. We also do. We experience the blessing of the table. We experience that as we taste and as we drink. And we remember again that he is the one who nourishes me. He is the one who satisfies me completely. We see that in the table, praise God. And David went on, he leads me beside the still waters. We talked two weeks ago a lot about the thirsting after God. He can satisfy that thirst, that thirst for righteousness. And the king said, he restores my soul. So when I am needy, when my soul is really needy, he satisfies me at that level. And so following our shepherd is the path of contentment. And my question here would be, are you following hard after him? Are you following hard after your shepherd? Are you seeking him who is the one who gives contentment, true contentment? So then you are not fearful or you will not be despondent uh, that you don't have what the world says. You really need all this stuff to be content. The world does that all the time. Or what the evil one wants you to long for because he doesn't want you to be content. Or what your own sinful heart says, yes, I want all those things, I want more. In the rare jewel again, Burroughs said, in the strict sense, contentment is only attributed to God, who is God all-sufficient. In other words, uh, often we use that term, the aseity of God, he needs nothing. He, ne- he needs no one. In that he rests fully satisfied in and with himself. He's fully satisfied. But, and uh, this is a quote from Burroughs, he is pleased to freely communicate to us fullness, fullness to us, so that from him we receive grace upon grace. From him who is the source of our contentment, he keeps pouring out grace upon us. So a contented heart comes from being conformed to him who freely gives us all things. And that occurs by being with him, by seeking him, as I said, and often in silence and solitude, in Psalm 27. Psalm 34, in Psalm 34, David said, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man, or happy is the man, or contented is the man or the person who trusts in him. The contented person trusts in the Lord Jesus. He will provide. And it goes on, O fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. There's no lack. There's no lack, there's no insufficiency, there's no discontent to those who fear the Lord. So contentment is relying on the goodness of the Lord to satisfy us. It is the man who trusts in the Lord, who trusts in his providence, his work in his life, as hard as some those may feel sometimes, who is blessed with contentment, who is happy. Those who fear the Lord do not know, want, or at least the, the discontentment of always wanting more. Unless, as I believe it was Joel, or somebody prayed this morning, unless it is the holy desire for more of the Lord Jesus, to know him more deeply. May that be so. One of the other key passages on contentment, uh, besides this one in the New Testament, um, and uh, Hebrews thirteen fifteen is Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Philippians 4. And the apostle, you all know what he went through, a lot. And he said, not that I speak 
in regard to need, so he's saying uh, he wasn't discontented. He wasn't asking them right there. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Paul learned to be content. When he had little, when he was uh, abased, when he was humbled or brought low, uh, when he was hungry, he could be content. He learned by the grace of God to be content. And when he was full and he abounded and he had everything he was, that was necessary and maybe more, he had plenty. His heart was not drawn to things. His possessions did not possess him. Otherwise, he would have been discontent. And I think this is what Paul meant in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You know, there's a long list there of what the Apostle Paul went through as he ministered the gospel. There's a long list there. And the last two are this. He said, as poor, as poor, maybe related to the world, as poor, yet making many people rich, as having nothing, comparatively maybe, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. That was Paul's perspective, a contented perspective. His content was in, was in the Lord Jesus, who strengthened him, Philippians 4.13, when he was in need, even in prison, strengthened him to not covet. And the Lord strengthened him when in plenty also, which is a, could be a dangerous time, not to be content in things and in material blessings. Paul said he learned to be content. And we will always need, dear family, to be learning to be content and to be satisfied in him and his good gifts and what he sovereignly brings into our lives. We are in his training program. Praise God. He's a loving Heavenly Father. I found a paper by a counselor in the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, and uh, her name was Susan Heck. And in this paper, it's on their website, uh, it was on contentment. And But one part of it that impressed me, she had a list of if-onlys. And I'm not going to share all of them, but you'll get the, the idea here. If only I had a good marriage or a better marriage, I, I would be content. If only I was married, if, you know, if only I was married, I would be content. If only I had a new house or a bigger house, something like that, I would be content. If only I had more friends, I would be content. If only my life wasn't so busy, I would be content. If only I didn't have this physical problem, this issue, this pain, I would be content. If only I had more money, I would be content. You could go on. Now, dear family, we may not be aware. Each of us may not be aware of our wishes like this. We may not be consciously aware of them as we should be, as we need to be. But it might be helpful, I think, to take some time and consider some of your what-ifs to be content. Ask the Lord to help you identify those. They are very unhealthy to keep because they cause us, they cause you to question God's goodness and God's faithfulness and his providence. And they may cause us to take our eyes off of the one who is the source of our contentment. 
And I think a contented person, though, is more likely to ask something like this, ask this question, well, Lord, this is hard. What do you want to do in me through this situation, this circumstance that you have sovereignly allowed me to be in? What am I supposed to learn? Lord, help me to be content. Another perspective on contentment, verse 7, says, we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. I believe the Apostle Paul here was thinking of Job, and in Job chapter 1, verse 21, Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in verse 22, the author, through the Lord Jesus, of course, said, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job did not charge God with wrong in what he was facing. Now think of that. Charging God with wrong. Jared Ridge and I were talking on Friday, and he mentioned he had a, something hanging on his wall, from, a quote from Matthew Henry on Job chapter 1, and this is, he sent it to me. And he said, uh, uh, Matthew Henry said, in all this, Job did not act amiss. In other words, he didn't sin against the Lord, complain, whatever. He did not act amiss. For he did not attribute folly to God, nor in the least reflect upon God's wisdom in what he had done. He didn't question it. And this quote, he said, he said, discontent and impatience do in effect charge God with folly. May it not be so from us. I believe Job maybe could have relied on his wealth. I don't believe he did, but he learned, kind of like Paul, he learned that the sovereign God gives much to people, some people at some times, and he takes away from some people at some times. A contented heart has the, the poise that was in Watson's definition, has the poise, the contentedness that gives a peace that keeps a person steady in any case. And we need to have a right perspective, I believe, an eternal perspective on all the things that God has lovingly given to us and that we are stewards to use all that he's given us for his glory and the extension of his kingdom. Matthew 6.33, you know this verse. I believe it's a, a key verse on priorities. It's a, a way to, it's an eternal perspective on needs and things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. All these things shall be yours as well. Don't worry about those things. They should not be your priorities. Also on prior priorities, we are to seek him who is our portion. And if we are doing that, dear family, I believe we will not be ruined. We will not be fully full of discontentment by false hopes in things or possessions or power or worldly riches or acceptance or whatever we might be tempted. Whatever you feel you lack, maybe. And that those things could lead you to, uh, to be tempted to discontentment. Our Lord Jesus spoke a parable of the rich man. This is in Luke chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. So in Luke 12, uh, the rich man said, well, he had a lot of stuff. So he said, well, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Take it easy. You got everything you want. I'm, I'm satisfied. 
He had a lot of stuff, and he was tempted to make that his security, to be satisfied with that alone. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things which you have provided, which you stored up, you gave your life to accumulate, whose, whose will those be? So is he who lays up tre- uh, treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now a rich man, I think, can be just as discontent in his heart as a poor man, if not, if not more so. True richness can be measured, I believe, by a contented heart, a heart that is at peace, a heart that is at rest, because the Lord Jesus is his sufficiency, and he never changes. Earlier, Jesus had said in uh, the same chapter, chapter 12, verse 15, take heed, in other words, be very careful. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession, like that man in the parable. Your life does not consist in those things. So take heed, beware, be alert to this in your heart. Ask the Lord to make you alert to this. Ask the Spirit to make you aware of covetousness. It's very slippery, dear family. It can really sneak up on you. Because your life does not equal what you have. It does not equal what you possess. It does not equal your position or whatever you might be longing for. And our hearts are so deceptive that they can easily begin to covet and begin to think the what-ifs. You know, if I only had more of whatever. Back to Matthew 6. Our Lord commanded us, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. He knows that. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. May that be our mindset. Verse 8 says, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Wow, that's only two things. Food, certainly we need. The Lord knows we need. Nourishment and clothing, and I believe shelter could be included in this. These are very basic in terms of living life and of needed possessions. And in America, how long is the list of the typical American here? Much larger than this, I think. But it is the, what the Lord is talking about isn't so much, Lord blesses us, and I'll share that in just a minute. We have many good things. Not a sin just to have them. But it's the yearning, it's where our heart is at in these things. It's a heart for more, something that causes a discontent. So our culture is not into being thankful for the basics, I don't think, whatever those may be. Modern advertising, you know, is ubiquitous. It uh, is very skilled. In fact, it's their job to entice us to want more and more stuff or, or look differently or whatever it may be. And it might be good to review. I put 20 or 30 of these at the back table. Uh, Phil's sermons back in 2001, I believe. I think there were five of them. But I, there's a summary of it back on the table. And it's called Developing Sales Resistance. It's very good. There's a section right in the middle on contentment. And unless, dear family, we are alert, I, I believe, alert in all the ways that we can be tempted, for example, movies and media or even being around a bunch of discontented people, we we have to be aware, we have to be 
understanding what's going on and reinforce, these things can reinforce negativity and discontent. May we be kept from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It's all around, it's incessant. Now something refreshing to me is water and I'm thankful for water. Something refreshing to me, I got to thinking of this, it just came up, uh, I don't know how directly it applies, but uh, you know, I like to hear young children pray. And on Wednesday night, it's one of the blessings of the prayer time on Wednesday night, is I get to hear these little, little sweet voices pray, praising Jesus. And uh, when we were raising our t- kids, and I would go into their bedroom at night and uh, sit on their bed, and I, most of the time, I would ask them, well, what are you thankful for today? What are you thankful for? And by the way, I believe thankfulness uh, dispels discontent. And it's a very good practice to start our children at a very young age to continually think about what I am thankful for and praise the Lord for it. I don't think you can be very much discontented and continually be thanking the Lord. And so when my kids were young, I'd ask them that. And I remember some of the answers now because they're so awesome to me. Uh, it'd be very simple, especially with the young ones. And I'd say, well, what are you thankful for? And I remember this one for some reason, uh, air. Okay, you know, I haven't thanked the Lord for air today. <laughs> I'm breathing it all the time. And then, uh, or, you know, something like, something we just ate, like, you know, what are you thankful for? Grapes. Okay, that's really good. And, you know, you can go from there. And, and they're, so they're learning to give thanks. And one of my, uh, grandsons uh, said something along this line, but I said, well, what are you thankful for? Bugs. I'm thankful for bugs. I have not praised God for bugs very often. I rarely thank the Lord for really many of these basic things. So I'm talking about uh, basics here. And I needed those reminders uh, to me. Maybe we all need reminders to give thanks for the basics. How often do we even, I mean, food and Shelter and clothing are very basic. But a more thankful spirit uh, for these basics, I believe, leads to contentedness. So may we be like Agor in Proverbs 30, Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. He prayed this, Lord, you know, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, given to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Discontent in the rich or the poor displeases the Lord. And the rich may say, you know, I don't need the Lord. I can take care of myself. I can satisfy myself. The poor may try to meet needs by doing something that is displeasing to the Lord, like stealing. Hebrews 13, the other verse I mentioned Another verse too that connects covetousness and contentment. And maybe many of you have memorized this. Let your conduct, your life, your actions be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have that are allotted to you from the previous verse. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself, the Lord God himself, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you such things as you have, such things as the Lord has given you now. The Lord daily loads us with benefits. 
And that promise, this promise here, should be one of the foundations, I believe, of our contentment. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I know what you're facing. Thomas Watson in The Art of Divine Contentment said, God's providence, which is nothing but the fulfillment of his decree, should be a guarantee and an opposing force against discontentment. In his wisdom, God has set us in our current situation. And he went on, he said, the wise God has ordered our condition. If he sees it better for us to abound, we will abound. If he sees it better for us to want, we will want. And he said, be content to be at God's disposal, whatever God wants to do. And this one really got my attention. He said, you cannot be discontent without quarreling with God. And it reminded me of what Matthew Henry said about charging God with folly. What a foolish thing to do. And this is grievous to the Holy Spirit. He also said, contentment is a work of the Spirit and it is shown by a quiet and inner peace and with an outward submission to and even delight in God's sovereign provision. It was an inward work. There's outward obedience, action, faith. Matthew Henry talks about the folly of placing our happiness in things when we did not bring anything into the world and we cannot take anything out. And I'd like to go on now to verses 9 and 10. This is, we're going to look now at the opposite of contentment. This is briefer than the previous section. This is talking about the destructiveness and the evil of covetousness and discontentment. It says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Okay, this is a downward spiral. So those who desire, first of all, they have this desire. They desire to be rich. And as I mentioned in the beginning, some men that Paul was telling Timothy about, they were seeking to use godliness as a means of uh, gain, to get rich, in other words, to get beyond what is needed for their livelihood. And dear family, there are powerful temptations, as I mentioned, that can be very destructive, temptations to seek contentment by seeking riches, having hearts set on riches, comfort, recognition. These temptations are snares indeed in the path of a believer to trip them up, to trip us up, to turn us aside, to take our eyes off of the Lord Jesus, who is the source of our contentment, and his promises to provide. And we can see that here, this downward spiral. So very quickly, there's, it says, desire to be rich. So that's kind of the beginning. You have a desire. You're not content. You're seeking more and more and more. And they have a desire. So it begins with desire, similar to James 1. And then they fall into temptation. In other words, they kind of give in. They fall. They were tempted. They fell. And it became a snare. They got caught. They got stuck. They're kind of stuck. It's a bad habit. And then it says, many foolish and harmful lusts. In other words, they give themselves over to some degree to their lusts. And that can drown men in destruction and perdition. Perdition is the state of eternal destruction. So for those who are totally unrepentant, who are not regenerate by the grace of God, um, that's 
That's their, their end. James 1 says, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires, again by desires, and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and, when, and then sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. It's a bad downward spiral. And this is the progression that is easy to fall into if our desires are not checked and disciplined by the word of God and by the Spirit. And we have a role in each other's lives also. We know we are to practice the one another in each other's lives. If one of our brothers is in a very discontented state, they need us to speak the word to them and encourage them or to exhort them. Continual discontentment is a very dangerous thing, I believe. And it's at least, at least, a sign of the rule of self. And we should be extremely alert to desires that remove us from a contented heart because we're pursuing things. And as we stated this morning in the Heidelberg Catechism from the 10th Commandment, and as Joel shared about and he prayed over, uh, you know, we're, we're not to be covetousness. We should not covet. And I believe that's a good prayer, and I believe I will end uh, with some of that from the catechism in the final prayer. And it says this, we said this, that not even, this is essentially what we were praying when we said that, that not even the slightest thought or desire, remember the beginning of those downward spirals, the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in my heart, I'll put it in the first person, rather I should always hate all sin with all my heart and delight in all righteousness. As I mentioned two weeks ago, we must discipline our lives, our hearts, to be seeking the Lord, to always be seeking his face. Because our focus on him, our watching him, will keep us from being enticed by things and tripped up. Remember Psalm 25? He said, my eyes are ever on the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. He will make me content in the midst of all this. Godly disciplines keep, help keep us from being snared to temptations, to uh, trust in riches or whatever. Paul said to Timothy, this is later on in chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6, he said, command those who are rich. So uh, certainly Timothy met these rich people there were some in his community. He said, command those who are rich in this present age. I would, I would say, dear family, every one of us is extremely rich. But he said, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, in other words, proud of that fact, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Yes, they are uncertain. They can go like that. But we are to trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good with their riches, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. And so we are given much, dear family. We are given much not to trust in those things or those characteristics, qualities maybe, but especially in the things. They are uncertain, Right? Look at the stock market. They don't last. But we are to enjoy. Praise God, he loves us so much. He gives us many good blessings. We are to enjoy them and thank him for them. 
it should cause us to be, have an even more thankful heart. That would be one of the purposes of him giving us so many good things. Thank you, Lord. Beyond the basics. And he commands that we do good with our riches. To be rich in good works. To be ready to give. To be ready to share what we have for eternal purposes. I'll just read this commandment. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. In other words, don't covet those. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love God and mammon. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away. Again, it is uncertain. Those are uncertain riches. The world is passing away, and the lusts of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The lust of the world can ensnare and trip us up. Hebrews 12 says we're to lay those things aside, get rid of those weights and the sin which can easily ensnare us. And I believe lack of contentment is one of those sins. And so then, let us run with endurance. Let's be content. We can run much better that way, with contented hearts. And let's run without that weight, the weight of worry, that we talked about because we trust, we're trusting in things um, and are unthankful or discontent. Now the devil and the world and our own selfish desires tempt us <clears throat> to give our lives for things. In other words, to love the world, to do what that commandment said not to do. This is part of the spiritual battle we're in and always will be in. That's why we have to learn contentment. It's the warfare we are in. <clears throat> and it's easy to forget that, to be lulled into trusting in the amount or just things, the, the, the accumulation of things or abilities or awards, recognition, position, all those things, acceptance. The world will always seek to draw us to its supposed bounty and comfort and satisfaction. We are surrounded by enticements to give our lives to things, which tempt us to think that material wealth, maybe that is an answer to some of my problems. If only... If I just had enough, I'll be satisfied. So the final verse in our text informs us of the danger of discontent in terms of riches and wealth. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Matthew Henry said, people may have money and yet not love it, but if they love it inordinately, it will push them onto evil. It pushes you in the wrong direction. An inordinate love of it, reliance upon it. And as for this love of money, this prioritization of riches and comfort maybe to be satisfied it says some have strayed from the faith they wandered in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows so greediness is again an an indication of a lack of contentment And, and it causes us it can cause us to stray from the faith it causes increased sorrows too it says their hearts are set on things on self really Uh, but they're not trusting in God's kindness, in his providence, and his promises. And this certainly leads to many sorrows. I think the picture here is that they were pierced with many arrows, and it will weaken them and cause great pain in their lives, in their walk. 1 Timothy 6.11, Paul warned Timothy, but you, man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. So we're to flee the lust for things and pursue godliness with contentment. 
And if you don't aim at these, you're likely, you'll not, it's more likely you'll be turned more or tempted more to the materialism of our age that we breathe in the air all around us. And for making worldly, we praise, pray that we will not make worldly gain a, a goal in our life. I am praying that you will know the blessed state of contentment that the Lord gives in himself. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, from our Father in heaven. So set your mind on things above. Set your mind on the list in Philippians 4.8. Whatever things are true, noble, just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on those things. Think on those things. And what we meditate on, I believe, or think often of, can greatly impact our state of contentment, the contentment of our heart, or the discontentment of our heart. Contentment is indeed a rare jewel. It is not natural on this earth. You don't meet many unbelievers who are peacefully and usually content, who regularly experience the blessed state of contentment, happiness, and thankfulness. Now we should be, of course, the examples to them, to those around us, of what contentment looks like, because they, they don't believe it's even possible. Contentedness, what are you talking about? Everybody wants more things. That's all, you know, that's, that's what they hear, all, that's what they believe. We should be examples. So, a final thought, in terms of application, four possibilities. First of all, I believe it's very important for us to, um, in terms of our prayer life, to be continually thankful. We should have a lifestyle of thankfulness, a discipline of thankfulness, and a practice of thanksgiving for the providence of God, providences of God, which are perfect. And then meditation, as I just mentioned, on the promises of God, such as, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We should trust in God's provision. It's a matter of faith. Third, giving and serving. Like I mentioned, we should be rich in good works. And that keeps us, I believe, from the temptation to cling to riches. We give them. You know, we don't hoard them. That's not, I don't need this. I can give it. It can be a great blessing to someone else. Giving, a giving heart. And then finally, probably the main point, seek the giver of all good gifts. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our eternal portion. Be satisfied and content in him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do pray. According to the catechism we spoke this earlier, we pray that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of your commandments would arise in our hearts. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Rather, we pray that we would hate all sin with all our hearts and delight in all righteousness and that we would hate covetousness and delight in your promises and your providences and that we would glorify you by a growing contentment and a growing love for you. O Lord, you are our portion. And Lord, we ask that we would be a thankful people. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.